John Cameron. And I'm Kat Lovrex. We are your co-hosts for an intellectual property law podcast series brought to you by Breskin & Parr, LLP. You can find our podcasts at breskinandparr.com slash podcast to access all the episodes and additional information on each topic. There have been so many changes made to the patent and trademark acts and rules that we here at Breskin & Parr decided to do two podcasts. One is about the changes to the trademark act and rules. And this podcast is about the changes to the patent act and rules. Our guests today are Lawrence McPhee and Andrea Berenbaum. Lawrence is a partner in our Toronto office. And in addition to having a PhD in human genetics and a law degree, Lawrence drafts and prosecutes patent applications in various aspects of life sciences, including stem cells, cancer and chemotherapies, bioinformatics, and diagnostics. Andrea also has a PhD, this time in organic chemistry as well as a law degree. And Andrea is an associate here at Breskin and Parr in Toronto, and her practice focuses on chemical, pharmaceutical, and biotechnology patents. Hi, Andrea. Hi, Lawrence. Good morning. So I had a friend who went into intellectual property law back in the 1970s, and the reason he said he went into it was because it never changes. The Patent and Trademarks Act had not been changed since the early 1950s, and friends of his were going into tax law, and there were changes every year to tax law, so he decided IP law was good because it was nice, stable, and never changing. Huh. I take it that's no longer the case. No, there's literally been hundreds of changes that we're going to be discussing. So how did we get here, Andrea? So I think if you look at uh, the Canadian Intellectual Property Office, some of their goals that they've stated to have is to have a modern, efficient, and accessible IP system, and importantly, aligned with best practices internationally. So there's been a number of recent amendments to the Patent Act and the various underlying regulations. So some of these changes have been in response to Canada's obligations under international treaties. These include the Canada-European Union Comprehensive Economic and Trade Agreement, uh, easier, easier to say as CETA. Um, this is a sweeping trade agreement with several IP aspects to it. It was signed on October 30th, 2016, but most of the provisions entered into force on September 21st, 2017. Another important international treaty is the Patent Law Treaty, or PLT. So this is an agreement administered by the World Intellectual Property Organization, although it was adopted all the way back in 2000. Um, it will not enter into force in Canada until October 30th, 2019. So this treaty harmonizes and streamlines patent administrative procedures among national IP offices. And there's 42 uh, contracting states for it. And importantly, countries such as the US and Japan are contracting states. So we feel that it's important for Canada that it's also ratified and will be adopting these changes. Yeah, it's good to keep in mind that, you know, although a number of important changes are coming into effect on October 30th, we've seen other significant changes to the Patent Act in the last couple of years. So, for example, back in 2016, we got privilege for patent agent communications with their clients as a, a good step forward. Uh, in 2017, uh, certificates of supplementary protection were put into uh, or made part of the Act, as well as new PMNOC regulations that are kind of similar to sort of the Orange Book proceedings in the United States. Um, back in 2018, in December, uh, file history became uh, part of sort of, uh, or permissible for looking at for claim construction. So that was a, a big change in the way that, um, you know, Canadian practice has traditionally um, gone ahead. 
So the changes on October 30th to the rules, you know, certainly will be really significant in terms of sort of the day-to-day -day, uh, patent office practice. Uh, but how we got there is, is quite complicated, and certainly changing the patent system is never easy. And there are strong voices, strong voices on both sides of the debate as to whether we should have stronger patent rights for inventors and applicants, or to sort of try to safeguard the public domain and, and perhaps encourage, uh, you know, uh, patent applicants to get rid of things you know, earlier. So, the changes that we've seen and that we will see coming into effect on October 30th, um, some of them certainly do simplify the formal process of applying for a patent application. And that's great. We wanted to see that. No one wants to see patent applic applicants lose their rights uh, on mere technicalities. But, but sort of the price we've, we're paying for that is that some other provisions have been put in that really do make the system more complex. And here I think of things like third party rights and, and sort of different requirements for reinstating abandoned applications. So, you know, we see in the new patent rules and the recent amendments to the Patent Act, this kind of give and take between provisions that, on one hand, make it you know easier and more clear, and the other, are I think, are more onerous for patent applicants and, and patent holders. So, <clears throat> what are the general types of changes that are coming into force on October 30? Are they more substantive or are they more administrative? So I'd say, broadly speaking, there's four levels of changes that are coming into force. I think the, the first level is what I would say are major changes. So these create something that didn't previously exist in Canada. Um, these are the sort of changes like we now have, will have restoration of the right of priority, which we didn't have before. Um, there's an ability to request the withdrawal of a notice of allowance. Um, as Lawrence was saying, we will have third-party rights to, um, to be concerned with, as well as certain abandonment provisions will now uh, require due care in order to reinstate, which just didn't exist before. Mm -hmm. um, the second level, I would say, is significant changes. So these result in changes to current timelines and administrative practice. So they don't create something new, but they are significantly different than before. Mm -hmm. So before in Canada, we were able to, instead of the, um, you know, if you didn't enter national phase at 30 months, you could pay a late fee and have up to 42 months to enter national phase. Mm -hmm. This doesn't exist anymore. Um, there's significantly shortened deadlines for many steps of prosecution. And as well, uh, you know, this is a non-exhaustive list, but one more example is there will be a requirement to provide a certified copy of a priority application. So stepping down from significant to your third category? Uh, the third category, I'd say minor, but that doesn't mean that they're import not important changes. They're still important. So these are changes to wording. Um, so, you know, there's various provisions that you require a statement rather than a declaration. Or, you know, there'll be changes in wording, um, you know, if you're requesting expedited examination of applications under the category of green technologies. So I'd say this is something that people have to be mindful if they're using precedents to make sure that the wording that they're using is still the wording that's in the, in the current rules and the current act. Mm -hmm. And then the last category is, other than renumbering the whole thing, which, you know, you'll, you'll have to get new, um, get used to the new numbering of the provisions, these are likely formal changes. So, you know, they've been trying to implement modern legislative drafting standards. And so this would include things like replacing uh, shall in the old provisions with must. So the old rule starts off with the claims shall be clear and concise, while it's been changed to the claims must be clear and concise. You know, we feel that this is mainly a formal change, but it's still to be determined whether this will be interpreted the same as the old wording. 
So the changes sound like they represent a huge overhaul of the patent system. Is anything staying the same? Yeah, luckily lots of things are staying the same and, and we're not kind of starting from square one. But, you know, for example, the, the main provisions governing novelty, obviousness, uh, and utility and subject matter are not being changed by these you know, recent amendments. Uh, one sort of minor exception to that is that the provisions in 28.2 and 28.3 of the Act, uh, you know, are being changed to reflect the restoration of the right of priority and to allow for a grace period that can extend back more than one year to a claim date from a filing date. So that's sort of a small technical change, but I mean, it's good to know that that, that um, grace period is being extended for that greater than one year in, in those cases where you, there has been a, a, um, a request to restore priority. Um, other good news for applicants where you know, money is often a concern is that patent office fees are not changing for now. Now that might change in the future, and certainly there is talk of uh, increases being sort of indexed to the consumer price or fees being indexed to the consumer price index. Uh, so we'll see if and when that comes into effect. Um, but you know, Canada is still uh, quite reasonable. It's only four hundred dollars for a basic filing fee to get something on on record, and we have no claim fees, uh, which can be hugely advantageous. So you can certainly take a, a large, large set of claims that would be you know very expensive to prosecute in, in Europe or even in the United States and put in you know, 100 claims uh, without having that, those additional costs. Um, something else that has not changed is that Canada still has deferred examination. So you can wait four years from filing to you know, request exam and there is a fee associated with that. Mm -hmm. uh, but a big advantage of that is that you can sort of sort out your prosecution and other you know, larger jurisdictions like the US or Europe you know, and see how things are going and, and determine and, and finalize a claim strategy there and then kind of import that into Canada. Um, potentially even using the PPH. So that's something to certainly keep in mind. Um, so even with the recent changes, I think you know, Canada still really remains a, a, you know, an attractive jurisdiction for applying for and, and, and obtaining patent protection. Mm -hmm. So for someone who is applying for a patent, what should they be looking at in particular going forward? Yeah, well, you know, one of the big changes that we've seen and I think are concerned about are the changes to the abandonment provisions. Um, so previously in Canada, an application could go abandoned uh, if you fail to take an action without ever having received the notice from CPO stating a particular deadline. Uh, you know, here I'm thinking of things like maintenance fees and the request for exam deadlines that are really set from the filing date as opposed to in response to a notice. So unless you docket those early on and are aware of them, uh, your application could technically go abandoned and you wouldn't have had a specific notice from the patent office warning you of that fact. So no warning, you have to pay attention to it yourself. Yeah, exactly. Now, as patent agents, we you know typically document these things whether you're on aware of the deadlines, but there always a, is a risk that you know applicants could miss those those deadlines if they haven't you know, received a notice. So now under the patent law treaty, uh, now there is an obligation that patent offices now notify an applicant of deadlines that could result in the loss of patent rights. Um, so the new system addresses this and it sort of puts into a place, uh, you know, a system of notices um, that will be sent out by the patent office in those instances uh, where you haven't previously received a notice set in a deadline. So the key examples of that are, are for maintenance fees and for requesting exam. Um, and then under this new system, an application, you know, will be deemed abandoned if no, no action is taken uh, two months after the date of the notice to request exam. So, you know, we will have a, a deadline of four years from filing to request exam. Mm -hmm. If you don't take action by that time, uh, a notice will be sent by the patent office setting a further deadline uh, of two months from the date of that notice to, to comply with that. Um, similarly, for maintenance fees, um, you know, if you do not pay a maintenance fee on time, 
uh, a notice should issue from SIPO. Um, but in this case, the, the deadline before abandonment is the later of two months after the further deadline set by that notice and six months after the original deadline. So this is a complicated set of new provisions with different timelines depending on the grounds of, of abandonment. So it's important to keep all those things in mind. Now, this new system should help avoid the unintentional loss of rights. And as I mentioned earlier, this is kind of an important upgrade to the system is we don't want people to lose their rights um, on, a, on mere technicalities. So, uh, you know, it's a nice safeguard to have in place. Um, something I will just clarify is that this new system of, of notices doesn't apply to communications that already set, set a fixed deadline. And here I'm thinking particularly of office actions. So when you get, when that comes in as, as correspondence, there's a, a clear deadline based on that date of when the office action is issued. Um, so you won't get a notice after if you do, if you fail to respond to an office action. The application will simply be deemed abandoned. Okay. Now, you mentioned a moment ago that the system for reinstating abandoned applications is also changing. How, how is that changing? That's true, yeah. On the flip side, it can, although we have this nice new notice provisions for certain abandonments in certain cases, uh, it can now be harder to reinstate an abandoned application. Um, so under new section 73.3 of the act, uh, to reinstate an abandoned application, you must make a request stating the reasons for the failure to take that action. And in this, now it requires that the commissioner determine that the failure occurred in spite of due care required under the circumstances. Um, so there's no more sort of reinstatement as of right. You know, in certain, the default is you have to have shown due care, uh, you know, and, and to have met that deadline. Now, there is some good news here in that uh, Rule 136.1 of the new patent rules provides a number of exceptions to the due care requirement. And in particular, there's an exception for uh, applications that have been abandoned for failure to respond to an office action, which can occur quite frequently instead of current practice, or for failure to pay a final fee. Uh, but certainly, moving forward, be very careful when abandoning applications because you may not be able to reinstate as of right. Uh, and in particular, this applies for failures to uh, pay a maintenance fee, either on an application or an issued patent, and for requesting an exam. So that's a, that's a buzz phrase, do care under the circumstances. Do we, do we have any idea what's going to be required to establish do care under the circumstances? Yeah, good question. This is a new thing that, you know, uh, applicants seeking to reinstate abandoned applications will, will have to deal with. Now, the due care standard uh, is already used by some receiving offices at the PCT level, excuse me, at the PCT level, uh, when determining whether or not to, you know, the right of priority should be restored. So this due care standard does exist. Um, and so there is some guidance already out there that can like, help illuminate what is required to show due care. Um, and SIPO, the Canadian Patent Office, has indicated that they will kind of follow and adopt a practice consistent with that due care level at the PCT level. Um, so that's helpful. Um, now, the draft manual of patent office practice, which is kind of equivalent to the U.S. MPAP, mm -hmm. uh, you know, has said that the commissioner will assess whether the applicant took all measures that a reasonably prudent applicant patentee would have taken, given the particular set of circumstances related to the failure, and that the failure, despite those measures, still occurred. Um, so that, you know, it doesn't give a lot of detail, but certainly it helps uh, give a sense that you have to have taken all measures, not just some that a reasonably prudent you know, applicant uh, you know, would have taken. Uh, and the, the draft manual is also clear that measures taken after the fact you know, will not be considered when, when determining whether or not due care has been, uh, you know, was taken before the failure. Okay. 
So let's go back a little earlier in the life cycle of the patent application. Let's not talk about death and abandonment. Uh, let's bring, make it a little cheerier with the optimism of filing and prosecuting the application. So what changes have been made at the for the early stages of filing and prosecuting a patent application? For sure. I, I'd say that an important one is generally shorter timelines overall. So one of the ones that I mentioned earlier is there's no more as of right late national phase entry. Um, so if you filed a PCT application and you want to enter national phase in Canada, you will have to enter after 30 months rather than having the ability to postpone that to 42 months and pay a late fee. Um, in most cases, there's shorter times for prosecution in general, rather than the current system where there's uh, six months to respond to a regular office action and then three months for the special order one, all responses will be uh, four months. And that's same for the payment of the final fee. It's now going to be four months to pay the final fee rather than six months. And as Lawrence mentioned earlier, um, you know, the time for requesting examination will now be four years for a regular application. It used to be five years. So I would say you're going to need to get systems in place to be ready to respond and make decisions more rapidly than we, we currently have under the, the current system. That applies to both us and our clients? I would absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Um, so again, there's really strict timelines for making changes in response to errors. So a very non-existive um, list is, you know, there's very strict timelines close to filing for correcting errors in filing date for the priority claim or the identity of applicants. There's also going to be only 12 months post-issue to correct errors in issued patents. So these are things that people should be very attentive to mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, work on correcting right away if they notice an error. So one very welcome change is a much better regime for making amendments after allowance. So under the current regime, the only way to make a significant amendment after allowance is to abandon by not paying the final fee, followed by reinstating it, paying the final fee plus the reinstatement fee, and then you can submit your voluntary amendment and it goes back into prosecution. Um, as you might appreciate, this feels rather uncomfortable for people, a lot of people, especially those who aren't familiar with the Canadian system. Um, we now have a new mechanism where we no longer have to abandon the application. Uh, for notices of allowance that are issued after the coming into force of the new rules, you will be able to request withdrawal of the notice of allowance instead. So you just have to pay a $400 fee um, within the due date for requesting uh, the withdrawal, and then it will be able to re-enter prosecution. That makes a lot much more sense than letting the patient die, saying it's okay, I've got resuscitation paddles here, we'll bring it back to life and then we'll make the changes. So maybe common sense is um, happening in the patent office after all. Lawrence, you mentioned that the changes that are happening on October 30th include some new third party rights. Why has this been done and what does it involve? Yeah, good question. This is certainly a, a new thing that uh, you know, patent applicants and, and patent agents will have to be aware of moving forward. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, you know, when the new rules and the new act were kind of you know, being drafted, there was a lot of push and pull on both sides. And, and I think the third party rights was sort of uh, a reward given to the, well, either to the public or to applicants uh, in response to other provisions that were put in that allowed for these, you know, longer abandonment uh, and reinstatement provisions. So third party rights in essence provide a safe harbor um, in the form of an exception to patent infringement to discourage the use of the abandonment and reinstatement provisions. Um, the government's position, as I kind of said earlier, is that third-party rights are required to balance the longer periods of uncertainty uh, with respect to whether or not a patent is, is still in force or whether or not a patent application has been abandoned. 
Now, these are, are quite complicated new provisions, so I certainly encourage you know everyone to go in and take a look at them if they're if they're relevant to what you know what you're doing. Uh, you know, in brief, uh, if during a period set by the rules, a third party in good faith commits an act that otherwise would you know infringe the patent, or even if they only make serious and effective preparations to commit such an act, uh, they can benefit from this exception to patent infringement. Now, as you can imagine, Don, this could potentially have disastrous consequences when you go to enforce a patent. You know, this essentially gives a third party a get-out-of-jail-free card. Um, you know, if the applicant happened to you know delay prosecution or if it was abandoned and reinstated in certain limited circumstances, that they can no longer enforce a patent against you know certain specific third parties. You're right. It sounds complicated. Can you give a, an example of a circumstance um, that might show how this would work? Sure. So imagine a scenario when you you, know, you file the patent application on a wonderful new product, and of course your competitor might be monitoring that patent prosecution and notices that for some reason your patent application has gone abandoned. Uh, you know that competitor then could take you know, some serious and effective preparations to produce or sell that product um, that's described and claimed in, in your patent application. You know, and that has to be during the period where the application is abandoned, or when during this period where third-party rights may may be accrued. Um, you then realize, hey, this is a great patent application. You know, you you reinstate the application and it proceeds to grant. Uh, you may not be able to enforce that patent against that specific third party because of these third party rights. Mm -hmm. um, now, the Patent Act allows for third party rights to you know apply or be generated in a number of different scenarios, including even the abandonment of uh, and reinstatement following failure to respond to an office action. Mm. Now, luckily, the patent rules have limited uh, the periods where third-party rights apply to a much more narrow set of abandonment and reinstatements or delays. In fact, the patent application does not have to be abandoned for certain third-party rights to apply, and that's an important point. Um, but effectively, they only really can can occur or crop up where there's been a delay for requesting an exam or for paying uh, a maintenance fee on an application or on a patent. Mm -hmm. So how long do the third-party rights last? Yeah, well, this is a concern because potentially the exception to patent infringement could subsist uh, for the life of the patent. Um, you know, in addition, third-party rights can be transferred. Uh, you know, to a transferee. You know, the transferor then loses their third-party rights, but it essentially is an asset um, that a third party can can you know, be carried with them in the sale of a business. Um, Third-party rights that arise during the prosecution of a parent application may also apply to the divisional. So there's a lot of pitfalls here, yeah. uh, and remarkably, of course, the patent team may not even know that these third-party rights exist uh, until they go to enforce the patent, and this mm -hmm. might be discovered, you know, uh, you know, during litigation or later on. So they may not even be aware that their patent has these these holes in it uh, until much later. Sounds like great grist for the litigation mill, which is what I do for a living. So I, I see there you no, go. I see no for harm you. in this, <laughs> right? So. So last but not least, do you have any final advice for patent applicants in Canada as a result of these changes? Well, I'd say a couple of the important ones are that uh, think very carefully regarding abandoning applications. In Canada, we used to have as of right reinstatement, we didn't have third party rights. And so I think that it was just, you know, something that people considered more of a prosecution tool. You could abandon, you have one more year to reinstate it with payment of a small $200 fee. So I'd say in circumstances, especially maintenance fees and requesting examination where third party rights may develop and there might be a due care requirement, um, you know, I'd say think very carefully. It should be a last resort rather than a prosecution tool. Mm -hmm. 
Um, another one would be be mindful of those shortened deadlines, especially those for correcting errors. So I would say that, um, you know, our advice would be to clean up any administrative issues such as ownership and vendorship filing of priority application. If you're, you're proceeding, uh, if you have a PCT application that you'd like to enter national phase in Canada, I would say, you know, address those at the PCT level rather than waiting until you've entered national phase. You know, a lot of these changes seem like administrative changes, but patent rights can hinge on technicalities. So it's really important to, to pay attention to these changes, even if they seem more administrative rather than substantive. Um, one of the things that we haven't gotten into a lot of detail today is the transitional provisions. So these are the provisions that set out which rules apply to which applications and also to which notices, whether the notice has been sent before or after the coming into force of these, these rules on October 30th. So one of the reasons why we haven't gotten into great detail today is there rather cumbersome and, and complicated. So I would say that these are the sort of things that you might want to consider on a case-by-case -case basis and, you know, consider carefully which regime applies um, in these circumstances. So, you know, do research, ask questions, get your systems in place, and then, you know, consider everything carefully, especially the transition uh, situations with care while we're getting used to this new rule regime. Wow, that's a lot of changes, um, and I really appreciate your insights into explaining that to our listeners. So, Andrea and Lawrence, thank you very much for this. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Don. Our guests today have been Lawrence McPhee and Andrea Berenbaum. Information on this episode should not be taken as legal advice. Lawrence and Andrea would be pleased to advise you. You can subscribe to our podcast by visiting breskinandpar.com slash podcast. There you can access all the episodes, additional information on each topic, and stay on top of what's happening with IP in Canada. So subscribe and follow us wherever you listen to your podcast. That way you'll never miss an episode. It's free and it notifies you when there's a new one. Thank you for listening to today's episode presented by Breskin and Par LLP. Until next time.